Good afternoon. Um, if you have a Bible, would you like to turn to the letter of 1 Timothy in the New Testament? If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, not to worry, because it will no doubt come up on the screen uh, behind me, so you can follow, follow it there. We've been in 1 Timothy for a little while, and, uh, and most recently 1 Timothy chapter 3. We've been with Paul as he's, read, uh, he's written this letter to Timothy, who's in a church that's in a tricky situation. He's, he's reminded him, him of the gospel, he's reminded him about the church, and, and then in chapter 3 in particular focuses on, on leadership in the church, elders and deacons, or overseers and deacons, and that's what we began looking at last time, uh, looking at what an overseer does, this noble task that involves shepherding a flock. Um, and we're going to look at the same section and then just move on a little bit. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 7, but we'll focus on a big bit in the middle, verses 2 to 5. So it says this, uh, Here is a trustworthy saying, If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but, gen uh, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So we have been uh, focusing there, like I said last time, in looking just at verse 1, our focus really was answering the question, what do elders do? What do overseers do? What, what is the task? What is it that God has set before them? Not individual tasks like going for coffee with someone or uh, answering an email uh, or reading the Bible, you'd be glad to know. Um, but, but overall, what, what's the task? Well, it's the task of shepherding a flock. And we were looking at how that's because, well, God shepherds us. He's the good shepherd. He's, he's the chief shepherd. And this is how he's arranged his church, to be led by sheep who've been asked to shepherd in partnership with him and on behalf of him. So we're looking on now. that The focus is going to shift slightly. Rather than what the elders do, what overseers do, who should they be is our focus this time. Uh, or what are elders to be like? Because we, we, we read here a whole load of requirements or qualifications. The church needed to know this because they had some bad ones. Um, and when Paul came, realized actually uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander were doing such an unholy job that they needed the left boot of fellowship. Um, and so the church needed sort of securing. This is what to look for in the elders that you have. And here's what to look for in the elders that you might have in the future when you get new ones. And, uh, and in that sense, hopefully... Uh, it provides some encouragement uh, for you. Um, but notice this is written to the church. It's not just written, as it were, privately just to elders. So it's not just that me, Chris, and Richard like, need to have a little chat about 1 Timothy 3. It's actually, this is, this is food for the church. This is something that will feed all of us um, and shape all of us. So there we go. We're going to consider uh, the question, what, what are elders to be like as we go through, we'll see, actually, that helps us to see what the church should be like as well. Number one, elders and overseers are 
ordinary guys. No look of shock around the room. Because oh. um, what I, I notice, what others have noticed going through those verses, it, it, on one reading, it, it doesn't sound very remarkable or spectacular or supernatural or tremendously dynamic even. There's no reference to miracles, no particular X factor to really wow people um, with what the leader should be like. It's not necessarily the case. These are, you know, the, here's a description of a, the man of power for the hour. Um, there's almost no mention of spiritual gifting. It mentions being able to teach, which is fairly important, uh, but also quite broad. Um, so, there could be a lot that you think, well, in the 21st century, if every church in the world got together and, and, and wrote their own list, what would it kind of look like? Because sometimes, as Christians, uh, we can kind of drift from this rather mundane biblical view and, and think, well, they've, they've got to be like this. Their social media profile has got to be like that. Or the number of people they've seen saved has to run into the thousands. Or their kind of grasp of every spiritual gift has to be like uh, uber mature, um, shiny suit, uh, on and on we go. You know, what, what image springs to mind in our minds when we think kind of um, church leader, maybe those things don't spring to your mind. But uh, for some of us, we, we may think uh, we're looking for somebody spectacular to follow. And perhaps we have in mind what a, a platform speaker, what, are they, what does an elder need to be? What does an overseer need to be? Like a real smooth operator. Like, in, incredible gifts of, of public speaking and everyone just laughs at the right point. Sometimes that happens. Ah, well done. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, in other words, we can project onto it worldly ideas of success. And sometimes spiritual buzzwords can be used as well. And in a mysterious tone of voice, people talk about the anointing. Uh, what do they really mean? Well, God does anoint us. Uh, every believer for a specific part he has for us to play. I believe God does, um, you know, if, you lay, if we lay hands on somebody to become an elder, I believe that something is happening in God. There is something real. However, we're not just to blow that out of proportion into a super spiritual expectation of extraordinarily uh, gifted believer who's just floating a few feet off the ground and for whom life is uh, effortless. This is uh, looking at fairly ordinary uh, list of requirements. I was speaking to someone I know quite well recently in another church uh, who leads a small group in that church, and and they said recently how the their group was joined by somebody who, in their movement, was a very recognised uh, and gifted. Uh, conference speaker, platform speaker, a Christian who is often way up there on the stage and speaking to the masses, thousands gathered at conferences or whatever, recognized for, um, for particular gift, which obviously shouldn't be uh, despised at all, but it kind of became apparent that perhaps that's where faith had only really been exercised, on the platform doing amazing stuff, and came into an ordinary small group, and it became apparent this person has missed out on some of the ordinary basics of Christian uh, discipleship and had a lot of catching up to do in the small matter of just bearing with one another, uh, being vulnerable and open 
with things that aren't going well as, things, as well as things that are. Um, and, and also just, well, receiving input. No, I'm the one who gives input. I don't need to receive it. Um, and so without despising gift, you can see, oh, actually, that's, that, that's no bad thing, but that's, we've got to celebrate some ordinariness. We've got to expect it. And, and being part of a community of faith uh, should allow for it, should it encourage it. Sometimes leaders um, can, can think, I, I dare not be honest for fear of being discovered as ordinary. Uh, I've got to put on the front. I've got to present myself in a certain way. I'm, I'm kind of condescending to spend time with ordinary people. No, we are all ordinary people. And we've got to grow, we, I think we do. But we've got to live there. Um, uh, Mark Rushworth, who many of us uh, will know, but many of you won't, um, was one of the elders of this church until a few years ago. And uh, I remember him uh, getting to a point where he decided to start writing a blog, putting it on the internet. And um, I think he wrestled with it for a while because he thought people might think that I'm trying to make something more out of myself. They might think that I'm getting above my station. They might, might think I'm trying to have some massive global influence. Um, and, uh, but when he decided to do it, I, I thought his, his chosen title was, was quite a good one. The, the title of his blog was Ordinary Guy, Extraordinary God. And, and that should be where we, where we live. And it reminds me of a phrase that crops up in, in um, Acts chapter 4, in my translation of the Bible anyway, which is like old NIV. Uh, I don't know if they do that anymore, but anyway. Um, now actually, Peter and John at this point have done something pretty remarkable. They've been on the scene when God did something re- pretty remarkable, which was to heal the man who was lame. And it causes a massive stir. They start teaching and preaching in the, in the temple, and loads of people are gathering. And the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, the Jewish authorities hear about it, and they, they arrest them uh, the next day uh, and, 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 and bring them into uh, kind of their presence. And it says at one point that after spending some time with Peter and John, they realized, like shock horror, they were ordinary men. What? We were expecting something else. Well, they, but when they spent time with Peter and John, they realized they're ordinary. What's going on? Because loads of people have just been listening and someone got healed. I know, but there's an extraordinary God, you see. There's an extraordinary God who anoints ordinary people in mundane moments, and actually then God can do, um, do anything. God anoints very ordinary us, all of us, for specific times and tasks and reasons. And uh, that's no bad thing. And that's for something for us to bear in mind when a point in the future, as a church, we appoint new elders, that when this eldership team grows, it will do so with ordinary men upon whom uh, God's anointing will come. But we're to have that expectation, just part of the family. Um, also, maybe to consider that in, in your own calling. Sometimes, People will, say, will have been asked, you know, maybe one of us has said, actually, would you, would you step up a bit? Would you take on this responsibility? Would you lead this team or this group or something? Sometimes when we're asked those kind of questions, a, kind of a natural default can be, well, no. Why? Well, because if I was to do that, I, I would expect just to feel more extraordinary by now. And I still feel ordinary, so I can't possibly do that. That's, that's a step too far. So, okay. Let's not make those kind of default decisions because actually we believe God anoints ordinary people to do stuff Um, that's not a reason in itself sometimes discouragements can come and this could just be 
accusations that we hear in our mind. It could be sometimes that people say this kind of stuff because occasionally uh, even the nicest sheep uh, can bite or kick. Um, So the elders have asked you to do that, have they? Well, I'm just here to remind you that doesn't make you anything special. You're just like one of us. Don't get above your station. Oh, well, I hadn't said yes because I thought I was anything extraordinary. I just figure that's how God wants me to serve at the moment. And I, Do you see what I mean? Sometimes, now that might not be a conversation where someone has actually said that. More often, it's probably just things that we sometimes think. People will think that I'm getting above myself. People will think I'm, I'm trying to be a somebody. Um, so I better just make it very apparent that I'm, uh, that I'm ordinary. Or, to kind of meet that accusation, sometimes what we can do is, well, I'll show them. I'm going to prove that actually I am special because they've misunderstood. And it can kick us into, uh, into a, a drivenness that becomes really self-defeating. God delights to anoint ordinary people. We don't have to prove ourselves in that sense. Um, so there's a better way of fighting that discouragement or that accusation that comes. Because what can happen if we think, I've got to prove myself, I've, I'm going to demonstrate that I'm, I'm, I'm special, I'm extraordinary, I'm worthy for this. Um, we, start doing, we can start doing strange things. One is we stop being honest. So we're, we're straight away, we're, making our, we're trying to present a bit of a front. Um, and, and so the leader never says, actually, can you pray for me because this is what's going on in my life and I'm not really sure what to do. Now, I've always got to present myself as, as one step ahead all the time. Um, and so we kind of try to project what we think success should look like. Um, what all that that does is just lead us back to the law rather than the grace of God. The grace of God that qualifies ordinary people to share in a heavenly kingdom has come to all of us. Isn't it wonderful good news? We don't have to make out any of us are special. There, there's a kind of joy in just being... Uh, ordinary, taking the mickey out of each other, being friends together. Uh, there can be that temptation to try to prove ourselves. But look, I think Paul elsewhere would try to encourage us against that kind of boasting that can bring. That then just does damage to the church. He said to the Corinthians, and maybe some of them are getting a bit above their station. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So let's not fight discouragement in that way. Uh, Let's not have unfair expectations. Um, Let's be a a company of people who are just delighting in Jesus and fixing our eyes uh, on him. Um, Not presuming on other people's motives. Noticing that they're leading out or they're praying out or they're emboldened. Oh, they're just doing that because of pride. No, not necessarily. Uh, Let's not go down the pan either thinking, oh, I'm sure that's what other people project onto me. Anyway, that's what I see. 1 Timothy chapter 3. The overseers are ordinary guys. And actually that applies also uh, to the whole church. What else do we see? I think we look at these verses on being an overseer. We see that he's also a family man. 
not just ordinary guy, but family man. Now, that is uh, qualifying straight away, really, because I don't think that Paul is saying that an overseer has to be married, or if he's married, he has to have children. Probably what he says about an overseer being a husband of but one wife is reflecting, firstly, a kind of cultural assumption. In that time, at that time, in that culture, be highly unusual for any guy of a certain age not to be married and not to have children. Um, so it's not saying uh, an overseer has to be married. There'll be guys who are single, um, eligible to, uh, to be overseers. It's funny how Christians can just get strange at times in how they read the Bible. And some communities might say, no, he has to be married. There might be other Christian traditions and he mustn't be married. I think, no, I think it's just saying whichever overseers are married, it has to be really obvious that they are a, a, a one-woman man, um, that there's no hint of sexual immorality uh, at all. And that also, in terms of looking at family life, he's to say, you know, see that his children obey him with proper uh, respect. Um, I think that doesn't mean that the children of an overseer have to be perfectly behaved. In fact, I don't think this passage is putting the spotlight. It's all right, that's what my kids were here this morning and had to listen to this as well. I didn't look at Sam when, he was, when I was saying this because I don't know what he's going to be up to. Um, but anyway, um, uh, the spotlight isn't on the pastor's wife and the pastor's kids. Yeah, that sometimes in different churches, I can just do so much pain. There's like pastor's kid syndrome because a whole community just looked at them and thought, you've got to be better behaved. You've got to be goody two-shoes. You've got to be absolutely on it. You, there's no slack for you. We'll allow other people to have the odd tantrum and need to be taken out and whatever, but no, because, well, you're the little child of an elder. So hey, all of that is just horrible and, uh, and, and can do damage. It's, the spotlight isn't put on them. The spotlight's on him. What sort of a guy is he? What's he like? And in marriage, if he's married, and in family life, if he's got a family, a family it should be uh, evident that he's worthy of respect um, and that he's giving proper attention to his family because the challenge of being an overseer is to lead two families well, his own and the local church. And it's managing and taking care of his immediate family, which is what demonstrates he's able to do it uh, in the context of, of church. So ordinary guy, family man, and godly believer. Because right here, the focus is unrelentingly character, character, character. What's his character like? And sometimes, again, in terms of competent, in terms of our culture, sometimes uh, people, we can drift to, to be really attracted to other things. We think it's all about competence. How skillful are they? Um, how gifted are they? Uh, now, that might come into it, but it's not the only thing. How charismatic are they? Is it really entertaining to listen to them? Um, no, it, it's not that either. The, the focus is on character all the way through. It's really tempting, especially today, uh, to try to water this down a bit. But, in verse 2, it says, the overseer must be 
above reproach. Now that can't mean, and it doesn't mean, he has attained to perfection in all things. Because no one's going to get that before glory. But, without wanting to put too fine a point on it, maybe it's not that much. I'm not trying to claim much. I think this is saying there has to be no, no obvious faults. Um, above reproach, that he can't, he can't be rebuked for much. Um, clearly, not perfect, but character really does matter. It's put positively and then it's put negatively. Positively, he must be a husband of one wife, this one woman man, must be you know, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, and then it's put negatively, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. It might sound mundane, but character is just so important. And this is even recognized in the world in leadership. Um, so General Norman Schwarzkopf, interesting character, uh, was not many years ago um, the commander-in-chief of all the United States Armed Forces. And uh, he led uh, the first Gulf War um, campaign, actually not just with American forces, but with, uh, with different uh, services from, from different nations. Um, and he said this, Leadership is a potent combination of strategy and character. But if you must be without one, be without strategy. He said, I think he must know a lot of the importance of strategy and planning and coordination. But he was in a position to say, from my experience, you, you can do without that. If, you, if you've got one of them, you have character. Strategy without character would be a bad way to go. So why is character so important for, for leaders in the church? Well, because great harm is done to the church when it's lacking. And over the years, kind of heard a few accounts um, of where things have gone a bit wrong uh, in, in different local churches. There was a time even when it just seemed all the time to be hearing one after another after another where hidden sin in, in an elder or in an eldership had suddenly uh, come to light, uh, whether it be a problem with alcohol, whether it was a problem with money and gambling, whether it was a problem with adultery, whether it was a problem with criminal behavior, and it then comes to light. And the damage that is done is massive. It takes a long time. I can think of other situations as well where, um, where there were massive high hopes for a particular uh, team of elders in a local church, uh, almost because these guys were seen to be like an all-star cast, this collection of all the talents, really high capacity, massively gifted guys, and there were high hopes for what they would achieve uh, together, but at the same time, it was like, yeah, there could be some problems character-wise, but because of the potential and the gifting, 
let's see which way it goes. And they saw which way it went, and it wasn't that great. Because these kind of mundane things actually matter. Gentle, not quarrelsome. If you have, even if it's not seen in public, if you have an eldership team which hasn't got that down, and they're arguing with each other, and they're not getting on with each other, they're not forgiving each other, and they're not able to, to really lead out of a place of good relationship and unity, what on earth is going to be manifested in the church? How can that group lead a church into unity and into godliness and into gentleness? There's a massive compromise. There's a massive problem, and it didn't work out well. So what happens? Well, actually, they start looking for some ordinary guys who are godly believers, who've who've worked things through, who maybe need to overcome those discouragements or accusation thoughts. So they well, I'm I'm just ordinary. How could I possibly? And we think God's calling you to it. Um, it That should be the way that it goes. And now, again, it's not to despise giftedness or high-capacity people. It's just to say, here lies the absolute non-negotiable priority. Character has to be there. It has to be strong. There has to be strong evidence of this guy is growing and has already grown in uh, godliness. But also, not just is it in terms of the great harm that's done to the church, but also just to consider for a moment the massive mixed message it brings in terms of the gospel itself. Because just a little while ago, earlier on in 1 Timothy, Paul writes this, talks about the law, then he, and then he says, well, he says uh, in 1 Timothy 1 verse 9, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and ir- irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is entrusted to me. What is Paul most passionate about? He's most passionate, verse 11, this glorious gospel of the blessed God. This is the message that Paul was striving to see spread across the globe. That's his passion. His passion is for Jesus, and it's a message that transforms people's lives. Therefore, he says, well, in a sense, therefore, it's no surprise that he should say, there is a way of living that is in keeping with this sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel. It should be evident the glorious gospel leads to a changed life. So Paul can say, I'm amazed by God's grace because I was once a violent man. A few chapters later, in all integrity, he can say an overseer must not be violent. Can you see? The gospel has this transforming power. But again, where will the church head if its leaders are compromised in one of these areas? How? There's the chief shepherd. There's the good shepherd. There's Jesus who's laid down his life for us. He's gone ahead of us, the perfect spotless righteous one and he has a flock and he's leading that flock where is he leading that flock well ultimately to glory ultimately to heaven and towards godliness we will be like him 
That's the goal. The goal, dare I say, of the gospel was not to justify us and take us sin away so that we're no longer uh, in line for the penalty of sin. The gospel does do that. But the goal is that by being justified, we might be transformed and become more and more like Jesus. So we delight in the gospel. We delight in the fact our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west by his wonderful grace. You see, the law could never have done that. All the law did was to say, that's not right. And that's not right, and you're not right. That's sinful, and that's sinful. That thing in your heart, that thing you just did with your hands. It does. Now, that's important, but what the law could never do was actually change us. So it needed to be by grace. It needed to be by the Son of God dying for us. That by the grace of God, we might say no to ungodliness. Not by the law wagging its finger. No, we, we learn something from the law. It shows us what Christ-likeness looks like to a, a large extent. But what we needed is the grace of God to come to us. And the Spirit of God. So we're living by grace. And we're living in step with the Spirit. And therefore, we're experiencing His help in walking free from sin. This is how it's put in Romans uh, chapter 6 and verse 5. Romans 6 verse 5 says, If we have been united with him, talking about Jesus and us, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with or kind of rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Here is the glory and the goal of the gospel. Because of Jesus' death, by faith we can say, that our old self was crucified with him. The person that I was, the person that I used to be, before I responded in faith and in repentance to Jesus, that person has died with Jesus on the cross by faith. He says, for we know that. That's what Paul says. We know this. We know this is true. Here's the gospel. The old me is dead. The me that deserved punishment like that, crucifixion, has gone. Verse 7, anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Well, with Jesus, I have died. And therefore, I am freed from the penalty that my sin deserved. Isn't that glorious? And we see the goal of it as well. Look, we know that our old self was crucified with him. So this body of sin, this body I still have, uh, it is still pushed and pulled sometimes by sinful desires. The influence of sin hasn't disappeared entirely. But that we've been crucified, my, our old self has been crucified with him, so that this body well, yes, one day it will be completely done away with and I'll have a new one. But in the meantime, that this body that sin still wants to exploit and tempt should be kind of made ineffective, rendered powerless. It's not in control. Sin 
and my body are not in control of me. Why? Because I died with Christ. And therefore, we can go on and say that we should no longer be slaves to sin. The goal, the direction that Jesus is leading us into is to become more and more like Jesus. And he is all of these things in perfection. Temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And how, how amazingly he has managed his household. That's Jesus. That's where he is leading. So wouldn't it be a massive mismatch we said, it's okay. It's okay if leaders drink too much. It's okay if elders aren't always gentle. It's okay if he's married to more than one woman. It's okay if he looks at more than one woman. No, that, it's like a, a massive mismatch. And you sometimes hear some just real, I mean, utterly, doubly painful and defeating situations. And this doesn't happen all the time. It's bad enough if... An overseer has hidden sin exposed. And then, even more crippingly frustrating is when there's such clear evidence of his wrongdoing, but like half the church say, we still love him. We don't really mind. He's led us for 20 years. He started the church. We like his gift. He's quite entertaining. And uh, we feel loyal to him, so we're going to make this decision that it doesn't matter. And the massively compromised leader goes, hoo-hoo, I'll keep leading then. Church, we've got to love the gospel and God's plan for the church more than that, without wanting to put too fine a point on it, that you sh- we should always be able to hold up 1 Timothy 3 without you, like, kind of pinning us to the wall, perhaps. But... Loving us doesn't mean overlooking anything that doesn't match up. Um, but what we, what we want, and what, the direction that Jesus is leading us in, should be, I'm a believer of this gospel, and it's had fruit, it's had effect. Um, and you, you should see that in its leaders. But here's the double-edged moment. That's just what should be the case in the community, full stop. Here's some homework. Every characteristic in this passage is an instruction given to every New Testament believer somewhere else. One woman, man. Go to Ephesians. No hint of sexual immorality. Right. Not given to drunkenness. Go back to Ephesians. Don't be filled with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Every, absolutely everything. Let your gentleness be evident to all. You go through the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. There it is, all the way through. It's where the gospel is leading all of us. It's God's plan and purpose for all of our lives. We all do different things. We'll have different personalities, different gifts, uh, uh, different responsibilities in life. But this is what God has in mind for us. So, again, dare I say, it shouldn't just be overseers or potential overseers who should read through that list and go, Holy Spirit, do you need to nudge me on any of these? It's just like for every believer. Lord, is there anything you want to highlight here that by 
the help of the Holy Spirit, I might learn, grow in the negative things that might need to be thrown off, not because of condemnation, but because the Bible encourages us. If you're living by the Spirit, you won't gratify the flesh. You won't gratify the sinful nature. So what do we do? We need to learn what it is to to live by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. So I'm not going to fill myself up with alcohol. I'm going to work out what it means to fill myself up with the Holy Spirit. So if I read the word that the Holy Spirit inspired, I think probably I'm going some way to that. I pray it through. um, That that's the direction that we're going in. And sometimes we can look back in life, and all of us can look back at moments where we think, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Oh, does this mean I can't serve God because I've got this thing in my past? No, it means in the here and now, I'm wanting to follow him. I'm trusting him. Look, if it was on the basis of the law, no one would be in. No one would be leading. Nobody would be included. It isn't. It's on the basis of grace. And that's what enables us to walk on with him, saying no to ungodliness. So an overseer should be an example of what the gospel does in our lives. But then that's true of every believer. Like, like Paul was able to say, I was once a violent man, but the gospel changed him. We want to resemble Jesus. So, just to make it an explicit question, does anything from Paul's list to Timothy that we've just seen grab your attention? If it does, oh no, a moment of conviction, come to the gospel. Come to Jesus. Find here his spirit-inspired resources to say, it's not in control of me. I've The old me has died. I'm a new creation in Christ. I still have this body that experiences uh, sinful temptations, but now, by the Spirit of God, it's not inevitable that as soon as sin says to me, jump, I jump. Like It's just a reflex reaction. As soon as as temptation comes up, it just happens. Lost my temper, did something else, la, 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 la. No, when sin comes along and pokes and probes at the believer, saying, go on. You ordinary so-and-so, then I can think, actually, who am I? What has Jesus done for me? What is the message of this gospel? And I'm going to decide I don't, I don't have to. Sin is not my master. That's what Paul will go on to say. Sin is not my master. I'm not under law. I'm under grace. I celebrate the fact I'm justified, and now I'm going to grow in my godliness. Because it can be a scary, a scary thought. I think, oh, it's not just inevitable. Sin is not an inevitability in any given scenario. In any given scenario, by his grace and by the Spirit, we have the choice to say no to it. I went through this list and I got a bit scared in some respects. I thought, okay, let's just kind of come before the Lord. What if everybody in the church was as gentle as I am. Would that be a good thing? Or should that be a little bit concerning? What if everybody in the church used alcohol the way that I do? Would that bring a problem? What if everybody resolved their conflicts and difficulties the way that I do? Quarrelsome or something else? Do you see where I'm 
Now that's not to kind of say condemnation, you get sucked back into all that discouragement. It's to say, Holy Spirit, surprise, surprise, I always recognize there are areas in which I need your help massively in which to grow and to seize faith and to, and to enjoy the gospel and to get it, come to him and to stay close to the shepherd that is Jesus Christ, knowing that he's going to lead me. And actually he's doing a work on our characters sometimes when we don't even notice it. Refining and leading and helping. And he never leads us down a dead end. He says, my spirit is still available. You can still make a choice today. Let's work together. Come on, work, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's God who says to us, I began a good work in you. And he promises, I'm going to carry it on to completion. Thank you, Lord. That means that right now, experiencing this or that temptation, I can work out my salvation with fear and trembling. God, help me to follow you in this. That's what the gospel does. Therefore, that's what overseers should be leading the flock into. Greater and greater godliness. Amen? All right.